On this podcast, we discuss medical diagnoses and procedures. All of the guests express their own opinions. You should always seek medical advice from a trained and credentialed professional when making decisions about your own health. Welcome to the Sleep Apnea Stories podcast. I'm Emma Cooksey, and I've been coping with sleep apnea since childhood. I didn't know anyone in my life with a sleep disorder, so I decided to start this podcast. I'm here to build community and provide a platform for people with sleep apnea to tell their stories. Together, we can shatter stereotypes and raise awareness. We'll be exploring all sorts of treatment options and lifestyle choices to help you live your best life with sleep apnea. This is Sleep Apnea Stories, and I'm so glad you're here. Hey there, it's Emma Cooksey here, and I'm your host. So tonight is Halloween, because of course I'm recording this the night before it goes up. Um, So if you hear my dog barking in the background, that's because um, we have a bunch of candy left out and there's a whole bunch of trick-or-treaters come and every time they come, he's like, oh my goodness, there's somebody else. What's going on? Yeah, it's not really his favorite night. He's a bit of a bag of nerves. (laughs) So my main update since last week is I put my back out, like I did something to my back and it's been terrible. So I've been hobbling around. But I went for acupuncture this morning and that seemed to really help. So I'm hoping I'm on the mend, but I'll take any well wishes you guys have, like, or any vibes. Um, Because I just, I think these things happen as a reminder that I'm trying to do too much. And it kind of like physically slows me down. So yeah, I think it's probably about time I took a short break from the podcast at the end of the year. So I have a a few more episodes that are really great that I wanted to share with you guys before the end of the year, but then probably for December, um, I'll plan on taking a break just to be with my family and not be constantly talking about sleep apps. So on to today's guest, I'm really delighted to bring you my conversation with Dr. Meredith Broderick. So she's not only a sleep specialist, she's also a neurologist and she's also trained in behavioral sleep medicine. She speaks a lot about her journey during this episode, but I just wanted to kind of explain a little bit about what it is she's doing and why I was so interested to talk to her. So she practiced conventional medicine for about 12 years, but then the current healthcare model with rushed back-to-back patients, quick inclination to prescribe and endless paperwork just like left her feeling like there has to be a better way. And so she set up her own practice So she describes herself as a neurologist with an extensive background in allopathic sleep medicine. She incorporates the latest evidence-based research with behavioral sleep medicine to create customized sleep plans to minimize the use of medications. And she also offers care personalized to each person's um, particular needs, which I think can be so often missing, right, in, in the big system of medicine. So if you're not already following um, Sleep Doctor Mare on Instagram, um, I have a link in the show notes, but 
she she just has really accessible um content and a lot of really great education around different sleep topics and and a really beautiful glimpse into the Pacific Northwest and her life there. So I really hope you guys go and follow her on Instagram. So Dr. Broderick, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I thought maybe you could begin by just talking people through a little bit about your training and your background, because there aren't that many people I've come across who are board certified in quite as many things. <laughs> yes. So I am a neurologist by training. I'm a medical doctor and I have subspecialty training in sleep medicine. So I'm a sleep medicine physician as well. And then have also had behavioral sleep medicine training, which is ordinarily a psychologist that would right. be certified, but was able to do my training in both those at Stanford when I was there. Yeah, I just haven't come across too many people with that combination. So maybe there's like five of you and you have dinner together. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I wondered if you might want to share a little bit about your own journey with sleep, because I think that's super interesting for people just to, um, you know, be able to relate a little bit to your own story. So do you want to maybe just talk us through like what your sleep looked like as a teenager, how it then progressed through medical school, and just tell us a little bit about your own experience? Yes. Well, my entire life, sleep was kind of a thing. Um, and when I say thing, I mean, it's something I felt challenged by or felt different than other people. So my parents, um, a Korean uh, American adoptee, transracial adoptee, my parents are Caucasian, and they adopted me when I was six months old. They said I snored from the moment that they adopted me. And you know, I just always thought I was kind of a sleepy person and I was a night owl. And interestingly enough, these Caucasian parents of mine were, they were super morning larks and like, they're very much their identity kind of revolved around it. Like they got up early and went golfing and went running and did all the grocery shopping and all the things. And, you know, I kind of like slept through vacations and stuff like that, but I never really thought anything of it. And I, made it all the way into my sleep fellowship. And when I was talking to people on a day-to-day -day basis, and then also not on call or like staying up late studying all night, I thought, hmm, something is not right here. And I kind of turned inward and was able to sort of retrace the steps back through my childhood and realized that I, you know, probably met the diagnostic criteria for at least two sleep disorders. And that's when I really kind of kicked off my own journey. And I, I think that I was probably interested in that field and sort of understood the importance of it for those reasons. Yeah. It's worth just saying like, so your parents, like so many other parents, they didn't sort of um, look at, you know, you snoring as a child as a problem, right? They weren't taking you to doctors or saying there's something wrong here. Yes. And when I look back, now there were a lot of clues and you know my mother was a professor at, a, at the medical school in town and so these were not like these were educated sophisticated people yeah and like i said I, even myself through medical school and a neurology residency didn't really recognize that 
this was more than like my personality yeah I think oftentimes people that I've talked to especially with different chronotypes like people who don't do well first thing in the morning when it feels like society is set up for that it can be very isolating I think isolating and created a lot of conflict too uh and I that happens I think I see that now as a position like between spouses or partners and then um sometimes children but um yeah there was a lot of conflict there was a lot of difficulty understanding and I think I mean, I can't speak for my mom, but it felt like from my perspective, a lot of times, you know, she thought I was kind of a lazy kid, Mm. you know, I, she's, she's more aware now. So, so you started off with neurology, you said, and then talk us through a little bit about how you got interested in sleep. Yes. Part of neurology training, most of it is actually inpatient care. So seeing people, you know, they're like, top three things are going to be stroke, um, seizures, uh, brain tumors, infections of the nervous system. It's all very acute care. So emergent type stuff where there's a lot of ICU care. Yeah. And I think because of my sleep issues, I just didn't, I found it very difficult. The hours, like, you know, you round in the ICU at like five in the morning and, you know, with strokes, they happen at all times of day early morning, actually more probably. And so um, I had a really hard time, I think, emotionally handling the seriousness of what I was dealing with, but also with the schedule. And one of the professors at Case Western, where I trained, just told me, you know, sleep medicine may be something that you want to be interested in. And I think everyone else in the department thought it was kind of like, not a serious field, but I did end up going, I took two weeks of my vacation, actually, and you don't get much vacation and training. And I went and visited Stanford because that was the only time I could. She told me that's the place to go. That's the fellowship. And so I I went and all of a sudden, um, these are people who are talking about stroke prevention and they're talking about, you know, treating, you know, preventing these strokes from happening. And that was very exciting to me. Yeah. And so you went to Stanford. So is part of doing medical training in sleep, learning about your own sleep, like they have you do tests, right? Well, I don't know how it is now or at other programs, but we were required to do a sleep study. And we, you know, we were, we had certain things we had to do, like we had to work with an orthodontist, there was with an adult and a pediatric you know, version of that. There was a dentist we had to work with. We did clinic one day a week with a, with a sleep apnea surgeon. We spent time with the psychologist. Uh, so you worked we, with dentists and orthodontists as you were training? We did. We were required to spend a certain amount of time with them. And so that was one of the reasons that Stanford was such a fantastic yeah. experience. Is, and I think that's where a lot of training programs or maybe people who didn't do a fellowship don't get that kind of exposure. Right. But yes, so we were required to do a sleep study and Stanford is one of the only places I know of, and I don't know if they're still doing it where they would do studies with something called esophageal manometry, which is a fancy way of saying they put a tube up your nose and down into your, your esophagus and it measures the pressure. And so the purpose of that is to see how much effort you're, you're making to breathe, you know, sleep studies have this like belt around your chest. 
Yeah. The gold standard really is to put a manometer in the actual chest cavity and measure it. It's it's called PEZ for short, esophageal manometry. We call it PEZ. Is and anyone doing that like out there in practice or is that more no. just a Stanford? Right. I was going to say, I don't think they are. I mean, that'd be great. <laughs> in in um in in academic centers only and i don't know about some of the like names i i feel like stanford's the only one i've come across yeah. clinic maybe i maybe they do it at the mayo clinic places like that or hopkins but um so when we were sleep fellows we would we would have to stay and check the patients in which in private practice the doctors don't do that yeah. and one of the reasons why is because we had to put these tubes in you know we had to put them we had to place them so among the sleep fellows, kind of just the thing we had was whenever we saw thin women, especially Asian women, I don't yeah. know why that, and maybe that needs to be scientifically validated a little bit. So Christian Gimeno, who's kind of like, was the father of sleep disorder breathing, he, his paper was the original one that described upper airway resistance, which is you really need the esophageal manometry to diagnose that like people who are diagnosing it off home testing, they're extrapolating a little bit. I think, you yeah. know, peripheral arterial tone tells us a little bit more about arousability from the sympathetic nervous system. But, um, so we're placing these, these PEZ, uh, monitors. And so, um, we always would order it. And so of course I, when I had my sleep study was like, of course I need to have the PEZ. So I did have my sleep study with esophageal manometry. It's hard for me to believe I even slept with it. But as I said, I was a very sleepy So, so people person. are sleeping with a tube that goes up their nose and down into their esophagus, basically. Yes. Wow. Yes. What and does the other that thing, feel like? Um, it, 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 initially, it feels like you want to gag, you know, but yeah. then you kind of desensitize to it. And that is the one and only time in my life I've ever taken Ambien. And that's the other reason we would check people in is we would, we would administer Ambien to people mm -hmm. who were very anxious about the sleep study or things of that nature. But, but yeah, so that's when, um, I found out and I remember in the morning people being really excited, like, oh, this is, we could use this for a textbook of upper airway resistance syndrome. Yeah. I think a lot of people I've talked to with upper airway resistance syndrome, the more common patient experience tends to be they either have an in-lab or a home test, which shows that they don't have sleep apnea because they don't have long enough and enough of an AHI, but they do have something and, it, and they're usually either sent away or they have to kind of go and figure out some sort of treatment option without a test that tells what they actually have so can you explain what upper air resistance syndrome is and how regular people might get diagnosed with that <laughs> yes yeah, so our definition of sleep disordered breathing which is a broad category has evolved over time and right originally in the very first cases of sleep apnea which is short for obstructive sleep apnea where the airway is actually obstructing or closing down it was the most severe cases so these are the folks that are gasping and choking for air, snoring really loud, you know, yep. doesn't take a rocket scientist to diagnose. Right. But what we've learned over time is that this, this process of sleep disorder breathing, it has different types of what we call phenotypes or the way it looks clinically. And so 
There are also people who have just what we call hypopnea events, which are partial airway obstructions, and they're sort of less evident. We include those into obstructive sleep apnea, and we stratify, you know, mild, moderate to severe. And then we think of them differently, depending on if there's a lot of hypoxia or hypoventilation. But what upper airway resistance is, is it's where you have um, high resistance airflow, and it really doesn't meet a criteria for an obstructive event in the sense that the airway is not necessarily collapsing down, but that that upper airway resistance or the high resistance flow is causing arousal in the brainwave pattern. So it's disturbing the quality of sleep or the consolidation of sleep. And that is what causes the symptoms rather than let's say a low oxygen. So if you think of the airway like a highway, you know, if you've got eight lanes, everything flows really nicely. But if the highway is two lanes, things start to get a little congested. And that's just really what's happening with, you know, sleep disorder, breathing, obstructive sleep apnea. But in upper wear resistance, you don't really get the narrowing, you just get more this sensitivity to partial obstructions or milder obstructions that you're not going to pick up necessarily with an airflow sensor by right. itself. Yeah. Yeah. So if people, yeah, it seems like we need to have that sensor you just talked about in order to be really sure that that's what's happening. You know, you can see if you're, you know, if you're really attentive to the EEG and you have good EEG and you can see a correlation. So hypopnea events, the flow has to diminish by a certain threshold. Yep. And it's, it's crazy, but you know, at least in the U S it depends on the insurance company that the patient has, how we define it, which really yeah. doesn't make any sense at all. Right. And so on an in-lab test, and when you have EEG or in a test where you have peripheral arterial tone, you can see the hint of these things. But if you have a type three test, you're really guessing, you know, and I think some people might diagnose that, but they might be over, you know, they might be overscoring events a little bit and not, it's not as clear, let's yeah. say. Yeah. It can be a really big challenge because I think you come across that thing where people with the um higher ahi and lots of noisy snoring and lots of events sometimes those people don't necessarily have severe symptoms and then there can be people especially thin women who really have pretty severe symptoms but have you know a lot lower of an ahi and have more like an upper air resistance syndrome thing so so what did you do at that point to actually treat this like how did you feel when you got this diagnosis did you already kind of suspect that that's what the result would be or what did you think oh I knew I mean I knew I had it and it's kind of funny in retrospect because I mean Dr. Gimeno for people who know him I don't know if you ever got to meet him I but didn't know he was he was quite a character yeah and very beloved Mm -hmm. um, just an amazing person. One of the things he did, and you had to know him to like, sort of not feel that this was offensive, but we would have people who were billionaires or like tech founders or famous people come into the clinic and he would just analyze their face and their airway in the most critical manner. And he would do it to us too, and yeah. tell us everything that was wrong. And so, so I knew, and I think I, there might've been three or four of us that year that had our tonsils removed because that it's like, yeah. I've got to do something about this. You can't mm -hmm. talk about it all day and then realize 
you know, and so, I'm not doing anything about it. And so you said that you were quite a sleepy person. Did yeah. You, what What were your symptoms like at that point? Like you just were tired during the day? Was there anything else going on? I like I would wake up every morning with a sore throat. I snored really loud. I felt like crap when I would wake up. It took yeah. me forever to wake up. Um, by afternoon, um, I would have to stand up at work because I was, and there would be times where, you know, when you're in fellowship, you see a patient and then you have to go get the attending and bring them in the room and you have to sit there while the attending is talking to the patient. And that can be really boring because you already know what they're going to say. It can be boring for the fellow. And I mean, there were times I was like, I cannot sit down or I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall over. I'm so tired. That is the worst feeling. Yeah. So what happened then in terms of like treatment? You're like, you were in the right place, right? With all the oh, options. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the great thing about Dr. Gimeno was he felt so passionate about people getting treated that, you know, he let us, the people who wanted to get treatment, um, take a week off. So I got one of the reps actually from Phillips gave me uh, a CPAP machine for free. <laughs> and back that was back in the days when, <laughs> when that's, they, that's, things have changed so much. That was when CPAP was just like easy to come by. There was no recall. Like exactly. <laughs> everybody just had as many as they wanted. Yeah. So I think I just like called the ref and was like, Oh, can I try a CPAP machine? So, um, I got a CPAP machine. Uh, it took me about six weeks to sleep through the night with it. And I think the first time I slept through the night with it was like, I slept for 10 hours straight, which had wow. never happened before. But then after that, I knew I had to get my tonsils taken out. And so, you know, you kind of have to schedule that because you have to take time off. And so um, I had my tonsils taken out and that was like, you know, horrendous. Well, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it's I bad. had mine done when I was 19 and it was, it was not fun. It was not a happy experience for me, but yeah. I think I was so happy that they were gone. Yeah. Um, but I was definitely laid up for a while and I, a lot of people lose weight. I managed to like eat my, like eat all these like cappuccinos and, and stuff yeah, yeah so I just I didn't benefit from it that way <laughs> so how did you once you got through the the recovery from the tonsillectomy were you still using your CPAP at that point so I think I stopped using it for a while but then I think I was just curious if I would feel better with it and I do so I pretty much continued using it since then and you seem super chill so it's just working out great and no problems basically <laughs> i mean i was drinking the kool-aid too you know right right so, right, right. so you i i mean i see how much good it does so i didn't really have a lot of reservations yeah. about it yeah and I'm i like think especially when you think of it in terms of oxygen to your brain it's really difficult to be like let me just not bother doing that you know that was the most one of the most productive years of my life after that in terms yeah. of like publications and energy and really changed my relationship with a lot of things and as a person i mean you've probably seen my instagram where yeah 
started this whole climbing thing and mountaineering and like yeah staying up all night and getting up really early and like I, I don't think I ever would have done any of that stuff if I had not figured this out yeah did you have like I'm always like sometimes it makes me laugh because I always want to know how people feel emotionally about everything and every so often like I'll interview like an NFL player who goes I felt fine I started the CPAP it was all okay but did you reflect on you know your earlier life and how this had been affecting you yes for sure yeah. it definitely affected my performance in high school mm -hmm. um, because I was a really good student and through about eighth grade did okay like maybe the first two years of high school and then when I was going through puberty it was really tough and then I have that delayed sleep phase phenotype as well and then the two things together were really detrimental oh, and yeah so when I went to college and I could make my own schedule completely, I did really well. I mean, yeah. I graduated at the top of my class. You know, I was Phi Beta Kappa. I majored in chemistry, really excelled. I still had problems, but but then when you take me back to that's medical so school. That's so funny because that's exactly how I felt in college. Like, I feel like, I mean, I did fine in high school, but I think I was really starting to... I gained quite a bit of weight when I went to college and I definitely wasn't sleeping as well, but I had that thing where I didn't have a really fixed schedule. Like I had classes I had to be at, but I had a lot of leeway in napping and when I wanted to sleep. And so it really wasn't until after I finished college and I started my first job that I was like, oh, I actually can stay awake all day. <laughs> it's a problem, you know? That's really interesting, I think, and insightful for patients about the accommodations we might be able to give people for, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. I, you know, so some of these things we can't cure. So. Right. Are you a new or struggling CPAP user? Are you waking up and flinging your CPAP mask across the room in frustration? Maybe you have mask leak, skin irritation, or wake up with a dry mouth. You might be dealing with uncomfortable trapped gas from swallowing air or hair breakage from your headgear. If any of this sounds familiar, I made a workbook just for you. The six-week CPAP Solutions Workbook is out now. It's just 30 pages and has been designed to give you all the answers to the most common CPAP problems. CPAP isn't for everyone, and I hear way too many stories of people abandoning their CPAP and leaving it on a shelf or in a closet. The workbook includes a six-week tracker that lets you see progress over time. And if CPAP therapy isn't going well for you, you can return to your doctor and show them that you've given CPAP therapy your best effort and ask about other treatment options. To order the six-week CPAP Solutions Workbook, follow the link at sleepapneastories.com or find the link in the show notes. So I think we finished up, you, you're still on CPAP, everything's going well, and you have a look back and it's all good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the next thing I wanted to ask you about was a little bit about traditional model of medicine, because I think a lot of us will see a sleep specialist for, 
you know, like less than 10 minutes once a year. <laughs> I wonder kind of what you think about that from the doctor perspective, because I can't imagine that doctors are are really loving that model of care either. And maybe tell us a little bit about how working for yourself looks a bit different and, and how you, you know, like how long you're able to spend with patients and that sort of thing. Yes. My frustration with the traditional healthcare system, I think has been increasing because I think it has been getting worse. There are, I mean, I think there are several things, but the top frustrations that I had were number one, insurance is dictating more and more what we can do, what tests we can order, what treatment options are available. Yeah. And then, you know, until I started my own practice, I was working for someone else and someone else is usually interested in getting me to produce many patients in in a period of time, in a short period of time. And with my background of wanting to do behavioral sleep medicine, that is really not you know, those, especially behavioral sleep medicine takes time. I mean, it all takes time, but it just didn't jive with my value set. And I constantly just felt a huge level of dissatisfaction, but I always worried about running into the same problem if I started my own practice. And so when the pandemic hit and telemedicine took off, I thought, well, this is my chance because I can at least start and see if there would be business without taking in a commercial lease as an overhead expense. Yeah. I mean, it costs a lot of money to open a practice in the sense that malpractice insurance, you know, you don't think about it until you do it, but so you have to, you want to, you know, that was a time that that was a really big kind of bonus to take that risk and to say, okay, I'm kind of at a point in my career where now would be the time to do it. I think, I do think people coming out of training, it's valuable to work for someone else and to get that experience and see a high volume of patients and work in a couple different settings. But the way I have it set up now is kind of a hybrid where I will bill insurance when people see me, but in order to kind of push back against, you know, being controlled in decision-making and trying to see a high volume, I do out of network, which just means the doctor is able to you know, dictate for themselves what, what the cost of the visit is. Uh And there's no incentive there, you know, there's no incentive for me then to spend less time with someone. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was just reading a journal or an article in a neurology publication yesterday, because I think this is a trend that's happening across the country. And one of the things they wrote about, which is something I've absolutely noticed is, you know, when people have to pay a little bit more out of pocket for the service, Uh, they're more invested in it. And sometimes they're more compliant with doing what you say, or they feel more of a partnership, not only because you spend more time with them, but because maybe they put a little bit more thought into scheduling this appointment with you. Well, I also think that you just have, you're bound to get some better outcomes for people just if you're able to spend more time. Just there's so many moving parts to this. Like I, I, you know, I've been to a lot of sleep specialists where who, you know, are are absolutely doing their best in the parameters that they have, but they're, they have six minutes or something, right? So they're kind of like looking at your Epworth score, looking at your CPAP data, 
And if you have a ton of other questions, you're out of time before they can really, they're kind of like, well, do we want to order another sleep study? Do we, you know, what do we want to do? <laughs> Whereas I think if you had a bit longer, you could really come up with some other options. Yes. And then the limited time that we have, I mean, like, I'll just give you an insight to what it would be like to be employed as, you know, there are all these check boxes you need to document for insurance. And, right. you know, there are practices that will withhold your paycheck if you don't, you know, if you have these charts that need attention, like you can just not get paid. And so, you know, you're trying to support your family and pay off your student loans and stuff. And so, that's what you're thinking about for part of the six minutes as well. And yeah. I, mean, I can tell you when I was in that setting, I, I had high blood pressure and high heart rate all day long because I was mm. under so much stress. Yeah. And that's not good for anyone. No, it's really not. Um, so what does it look like in your practice working for yourself? Like I'm assuming you have, so you have an initial intake. Do you, how long do you normally spend on that? I'm, I'm assuming it's more than six minutes. Yes, I have kind of a guideline. So if someone's coming to me for sleep apnea, that's usually a more straightforward or snoring issue. It's maybe about 30 minutes. And then um, for insomnia, it's maybe 60 to 75 minutes. If it's a second opinion, it's probably an, an hour. So I kind of let my patients choose what, how long they need. And yeah. when I schedule people, I kind of put in a buffer so that if we go under or over, we can, you know, kind of you know, line things up a little bit better, but, um, I just, you know, I ask my patients or I get a sense from talking to them, how long the visit's going to take, because I think some people, um, come in knowing a lot more and then some people need a little bit more time or they just have a little bit more going on. Yeah. And so you can send people home testing straight out. Right. But then you also can, am I right in saying you can also use in lab facilities at hospitals too or how does that work yes so i have partnerships with two um, aasm accredited facilities in the area like on ones they're on different sides of town one of them has three locations and it's just it's really fantastic because i can operate you know without having to the sleep lab almost is being not used as much as it used to so these folks are almost looking to help you know, help fill them. And so it's a great partnership because when I feel my patients do need in lab testing, I can send them there. And then I can partner with one of their physicians to review the case and to talk about the data and figure out the best thing for my patients. So are you seeing a really, I mean, I know as patients, we're seeing quite a big change towards home testing. Um, are you seeing that in practice as well? Just like that's much more common? Absolutely. Well, it is mandated by insurance companies if you're screening for sleep apnea. I think Medicare may be, Medicare and Medicaid plans may be the only holdouts that it's not required. Mm -hmm. But I also think during the pandemic, you know, sleep labs were shut down because CPAP is a, you know, aerosolizing, yeah. you know, medical device. So we couldn't really run sleep studies. So people started getting a lot more interested in home testing. And I think um, the only downside to home testing is, like I said, I mean, there are some logistical issues with it in terms of like, if you're using a device, you have to mail to someone and they have to bring back. 
um, there that there's inconvenience on the patient side. And then there's also like from the physician side, people who will just like not respond to you for a month and keep mm. your device. But, but the device I use is really nice because I can mail it to people and it's just a single use device. And so people can kind of go on their own schedule. So you're, and... you're using Watchpad, is it? I use Watchpad one and it's an app based. And the other amazing thing about that, that I love, which, you know, this is what I really strive to do in my practice is I can give people the results the next day. So they're not waiting two weeks for a follow-up, which is just unheard of out there. You know, like I, I just hear about people waiting months for in lab studies and then they have to wait for an appointment to talk about the in lab study and it can just really rack up into a lot of months. So that's really nice. It's so quick. Yes. I wanted to make it easy. I wanted to make it accessible. I wanted people, I wanted to keep their momentum going of wanting to address this problem. Yeah. Well, like I hear from a bunch of people where they have a home test and then it's negative. And then to me, like if you're having all, all these symptoms and you're feeling terrible, you should then go back and say, okay, like that was negative. What do we do now? I feel like a lot of people say, well, I don't have sleep apnea and they just don't go back right but like I think just because you have a negative test at home doesn't necessarily mean that there's nothing wrong with your breathing at night right correct yes a lot of it depends on why the person came to see you uh, or came to see me um, you know of whether I'm going to repeat a home test um, try an insomnia treatment or look at another sleep disorder as possibly causing it um, I might just decide to treat the person anyway, yeah. for instance, um, you know, there are some people who come and they're probably more of an upper airway resistance phenotype and they've got chipped teeth and crowding and they're, they're going to do orthodontics anyway. And so we just decide, you know what, you're not, you're, you know, your treatment is probably not going to get covered by insurance. So let's just look at a palate expansion and let's just look at an airway orthodontic treatment for you. Um, and, and go that direction because you're going that direction anyway, like mm -hmm. regardless of whether you have your in-lab test and have UARS or not, yeah. which is clinically, that's what you look like. And so, you know, there are some people that would say, great. Yes. And there are some people who say, I want the data. I want to see the same thing happens with kids, you know, cause it's hard right. to study kids. As that's why I was going to ask you about next yeah. is kids. I feel like you're one of the few sleep specialists just because of what you were talking about training at Stanford, you know, actually observing dentists and orthodontists and some of these like root causes of some of these problems. So, like, do you see children in your practice? I do. I see a lot of children. I think that you, you're going to have to remind me, but you posted something on Instagram that I thought was fascinating about some kids who were not able to do oftentimes kids are you know like parents are told to go to an ENT if they have enlarged tonsils and remove those as one of the first things to do for for you know sleep disorder breathing or sleep apnea and what what you were saying was there was a study where a lot of those tonsillectomies were cancelled because of COVID and then those kids went into palate expansion do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I was really interested to read that. 
Yes, I mean, currently the standard of care first-line treatment for obstructive sleep apnea in children is tonsillectomy. And depending on the ENT you go to see, they may or may not require a formal diagnosis with a sleep study. But so they can just look and say, these tonsils are very large. So we want to take them out anyway, even before doing a sleep study. No, they won't take them out just because they're large. They'll take them out because, you know, the mom, the mom recorded the kids snoring and there's okay. behavioral problems at yeah. school and they have symptoms, but, um, you know, and just from a practical standpoint, you can send a kid to have an in-lab test and they cannot keep the electrode on. They can just refuse to keep it on. Yeah. And so there people have different views about that and parents have different views about that. Um, but so these elective surgeries, these tonsillectomies didn't happen during the pandemic. And so um, what happened was these kids ended up having a palate expansion because these kids a lot of times need orthodontics anyway. And so I believe the lead author was Audrey Yoon and uh, she's in California, yeah. an orthodontist. And so they did CAT scans. A lot of times orthodontists do something called a cone beam CT where they yeah. can do like a three-dimensional image of the airway. So they can see these tonsils and adenoids, this lymphoid tissue on the imaging. And what they noticed was once they expanded, once they did the palate expansion, that these tissues then kind of weren't inflamed anymore. Um, and so in other words, it was the airway resistance and the storing itself, perhaps mm. that was causing them to be so inflamed. And so if we make the airway larger, then maybe we don't have to take out the tonsils and nodules as a first step. Now, the orthodontic treatment takes longer, right? So, you know, it, it's a process. And whether it's as potent as taking out the tonsils and nodules, I don't really know. But it certainly is something that if you're really into prevention, yeah. um, you want to really consider both. And there are some people who just, they do not want their children to have surgery unless it's a life-threatening event. And so yeah. I just think we need to have all of these tools in our tool belt to offer people and counsel them yeah. about. So do you have relationships with dentists and orthodontists close to you so you can refer kids for that or how does Yes, that absolutely. There That's are- great such great experts in my area. And I will say that is the other thing about my current practice that I'll, I'll say is different is, you know, when you work for a sleep clinic, there's often an interest in selling CPAP machines. I mean, I hate to say it, like, I hate to shake my finger at my colleagues because, you know, yeah, a lot of them were not doing anything unethical at all but it's just something that happens when you own it even if it's with but the also i mean i think it's also just that thing of when you have a hammer everything's a nail correct where they see kids and they say well this this child you know has sleep apnea and so we have they have to be on cpap right but sleep specialists aren't normally trained in airway development right so they they're not necessarily thinking about that yes and I think for me when I was in a traditional setting there was no time at all to like network and work with other people and that's been the right. really amazing and thing collaborate about. across different yes. fields yeah yes yeah, so to say I can take a you know, a lunch break on Wednesday and do this podcast with Emma, like I couldn't yeah. probably have done that in an employed setting because 
those people have you on, they have you on the clock, you yeah. know, and you're definitely not going down the street to hang out with the dentist and, and <laughs> right. watch what they do. Right. Cause that's not, you know, you're not working as far as, you know, yeah. that employer might be concerned. Yeah. I think from, it's interesting to hear about the, the doctor perspective, because I think I always think from a patient perspective. So I think it's very difficult for a lot of parents to know where to start with some of this like if they think that their child is you know like even if their child's breathing noisily at night and these kind of things I don't think that most parents know that there's anything wrong with that so I think mm -hmm. a lot of it's maybe awareness and then kind of like knowing who to go to can be really tricky it's really tricky and it is also just inherently very difficult decisions to make where there is not yeah. a clear answer always, yeah. especially when it comes to kids and you don't know what the future holds. So I saw that you started doing your whiteboard Wednesdays again on Instagram. Yes, I did. <laughs> which I love. Um, and I honestly could ask you about like all of them, but people should just go and follow you on Instagram and start learning. But one of the ones I just saw you did today was do you want to talk about that graph thing you did fascinating where you're talking about the collapsibility of the airway and how arousable arousable might not be a word but you know what I'm talking about like yeah. how how much the airway is collapsing and how much people are waking up that was really interesting yes so going back to these subtypes of sleep disordered breathing you know there are some people in whom their airway is going to collapse and it's not going to wake them up. And so these yeah. are the folks who have really severe sleep apnea. And in fact, their, their brain keeps them asleep through an oxygen saturation of like 65%. Right. Yeah, and, and I've talked to so many of those people and they're, they're literally like, I mean, I was sleeping fine. <laughs> Even right. though that was all happening, you know? Yes. And I mean, I think that, it's not necessarily something you can perceive, which is why it's so sneaky. But, yeah. you know, if you do MRI scans on these folks and, you know, they might have white matter changes and they, there might actually be like a long-term impact of that. But so, um, so you have that, that the airway is very collapsible, but these folks are not arousable, meaning it's not waking them up. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people that, their airway barely collapses yes. or you just have high resistance airflow and it wakes them up. And so this is more of like your upper airway resistance phenotype. And these are the thin women who present with middle of the night insomnia. Yep. Um, and then there's a lot of, you know, shades of gray in between yes. and it's being able to recognize those different subtypes and knowing like, okay, if I'm really looking for UARS, I might be ordering a home sleep apnea test because this person's insurance requires it. But if I really had the choice, I might order a watch path study or an in-lab test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like at the moment, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that things are changing. The more research that's done and the more, well, the more patient stories we put out there and um, from across that big spectrum. But I think, I feel, I do feel like those people with a lot of the collapsibility are, are you know, going to get a diagnosis a lot more easily. Like that just seems to be, and in, in terms of insurance coverage of things, like 
higher AHIs just seem like those people seem to, you know, get treatment a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I love your skincare range. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to develop a cleanser and a moisturizer and what was behind that? Because I think that's just kind of, you just decided to do it. (laughs) Yes. Well, when I prescribed CPAP, um, you know, there are certain pitfalls, you know, are going to happen that might prevent your person, your, your patient from continuing with it. And, you know, 50% of the people who use CPAP develop a skincare concern. It might be, you know, anything from anti, you know, aging to redness, yeah. dryness, you know, strap marks. And also people want to know, what do I clean? What, what do I clean this with? And, and people will end up starting to use things that they already have or use things they didn't use before. And I mean, I've seen some, I've seen some things that are, that are surprising, like people using Windex and people using uh, alcohol on their face and things. And so I always thought to myself, someone should come up with a skincare line for these, for these, this situation. And finally, I just said, I should do it you know, why should, I should do it because I, I also just really like skincare and mm-hmm. I've tried a lot of things. And so I decided to spend a lot of time researching, okay, what are the holistic ingredients that actually have some evidence, you know, doing a big PubMed search on things that would naturally be anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, antifungal. Cause I think with all the moisture, people sometimes get this like yeasty skin. Yes. And rarely people go to the dermatologist cause it's so hard to get into a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. Other times people just quit using it or just put up with the way it looks. But so, so I did some research and I found, you know, this wonderful kind of women owned small business, um, and partnered with a, a skincare, um, uh, a skincare, what are they called? A, um, what? a chemist. Okay. Yeah. And we formulated these products and, you know, part of it was my husband develops these things. And I just thought, I want to do something about this. I want, people want to know what should I use? What should I use? Yeah. It's hard to know what to tell them. A lot of times medical supply companies will tell people, like to use baby shampoo or things with really harsh detergents that kind of break down the skin barrier. But, Mm -hmm. but having healthy skin allows you to one strap something on without having skin breakdown, hydrated, good skin, skin barrier. But then also, um, we want to be really gentle and, and not strip the skin. And so that's what these products are. And they're kind of a labor of love. I mean, they're not, you know, it's, it's very I, expensive to do this. Let, let's just say to create. Yeah, I bet. I had never thought about CFAP in terms of the health of your skin, which is the other part that's making the seal, right? Yes, very much so. So tell everybody where they can find you. Yes, I'm on Instagram at Sleep Dr. Mare, and my practice is called Sound Sleep Guru. So you can find me at soundsleepguru.com. And the, your products are available on your website as well. On my right? website. And they're also available now on Lofta and oh, on 1-800-CPAP. Great. So I'll put links to all those things in the show notes. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
Thanks so much for listening. I love hearing from you. If you'd like to be featured in an upcoming episode, please email me at sleepapneastories at gmail.com. That's also the place to get in touch if you just want to say hi or ask a question. Alternatively, you can always reach me on Instagram. My handle there is at sleepapneastories. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. This really helps a wider audience to find the episodes, and I really appreciate it.